Well, whether you realize it or not, today God has you in just the right place to shower you with his grace. We are slowly but surely trying to walk our way into what it means to be family, a faith family, an extended family, to help us along in this journey of faith to love God, to honor God, to serve God with our hearts and our lives. And so on this journey, we've been considering this thing called real community. What is real community? Well, it just so happens that we have a striking, beautiful example of real community found in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles... I do want to encourage you to join me in Acts chapter 2 this morning. The Acts community in Acts chapter 2 was the beginning of this thing called the church. The very first church was birthed on this day called Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, it was such a unique situation, such a unique context that, quite frankly, we cannot replicate it today. The circumstances are different. We can't, we can't really have quite what went on then, today. And also, it was really kind of more of a commune or a communal living arrangement, something that most of us just, quite frankly, don't want to do. So all the way around, we can't really replicate it. Most of us wouldn't want to replicate it. But there are some principles, some truths that were true in that community that I believe can be applicable to us as as we seek to be a real community here at Grace Church. Last week when we were together, we began by considering the R in real community. The idea that this was a redeemed community, a redeemed community. And we explained the gospel last week and how God in his grace rescues us. Uh, So we'll, we'll... I won't uh, talk about that right now. We'll actually review it again in just a few minutes. But today we're going to focus in on the E. The church is meant to be an exciting community. Now, take the word church and put the word exciting together in the same sentence. And most people are like, yeah, that doesn't work. Church and excitement, no, that's just not how it works. Church is boring. Well, actually, we're going to try to dispel that uh, by looking at the first century church and trying to bring it more into our reality here. Next week, we're going to talk about being an authentic community, and we're not only going to look at how we're meant to meet each other's physical needs, as they did, but we're actually going to talk about how to meet each other's spiritual needs next week. And then on the last week of the series, we're going to talk about it being a loving community. God was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. It was so good, they couldn't keep it under wraps. It was so good, it kept leaking out. It was so good, people wanted to be a part of it. And so we're going to talk about being a missional community when we get to that point. But today we're going to focus in on the E, the exciting part of biblical community. And that comes to us from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 43. So this is where we're going to focus our attention in the next few moments together as we, we seek to be this thing called family, a faith family, an extended family, to help us journey in a way that honors God. So this is what it says. And they. Now the they here are the 3,000 who repented of their sins and put faith in the person of Jesus Christ and then went on to evidence this fruit of repentance through baptism. And they, these 3,000, were now devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. 
And notice this, and awe, awe. Not like awe. It's like awe. Wide-eyed wonder, excitement. Uh, that word actually borders on the idea of fear. It was, it was overwhelming. It was incredible. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I'd like to just kind of pick on a couple of key words here to get us to this point of the church being a place of excitement. And the, and the first thing I want to kind of focus in on is this idea is that they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. The word devoted is wonderful. It literally means to continue to do something with intense effort. Man, these people were sold out. To continue to do something with intense effort no matter the difficulty. No matter the challenges. If you would, the word has the idea to keep on keeping on. To persist in something or to persevere. There's a great biblical truth. It's called the perseverance of the saints. The reality of true repentance in a life. The reality that somebody has truly met Jesus is that we are devoted, devoted, steadfastly adhere to biblical community. No matter the temptation or the challenges of life. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching. We'll talk what that means in just a minute. We are devoted to the fellowship. This is the idea of the saints coming together in partnership to do life on life. To the breaking of bread, which really is a reference to this thing called communion, bread and cup. And to the prayers. This is set times of corporate prayer. So they had devoted themselves to these things. And again... To me, these are the telltale qualities or signs of those whom the Father has called to himself. You see, when somebody is truly born again, when somebody has truly come into relationship with Jesus Christ by repentance, turning from sin and self, and placing faith in Jesus Christ, one of the ways you know the reality of that repentance, the reality of that faith, is that it goes on to be devoted to these things. Rick Warren, a uh, pastor in Southern California, uh, said it this way, and I think he actually captures the truth of it. He said this, anytime you find someone who claims to be a Christian, and I think the latest statistics are like 71% of Americans claim to be Christians. Anytime you find someone who claims to be a Christian, and they're not connected, or the idea here is devoted to biblical community, you have what the Bible calls a contradiction. You can claim one thing, but if the reality is different than what you claim, there's, there's, there's dissonance there. There's a contradiction. Because those who are truly the Lord's connect together with each other before the Lord. The old saying, birds of a feather tend to... Yeah, it's just what happens. It, it, it's when the Spirit of God enters into me and the Spirit of God is in you. I'm your brother, you're my sister, you're my brother. We flock together. Why? Because we have a common father who is good to us. And we naturally want to be a part of the fellowship. In fact, in 1 John, uh, John said this, they went out from us because they were never really part of us. So this idea of biblical fellowship being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, that's life on life, to the breaking of bread, which is communion, and to the prayers is really a beautiful evidence of the reality of true life, true repentance in the lives of these 3,000 new believers. And so it says they, they were devoted. 
And then it has this great phrase, and it says, And awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. This little clause is actually set off from what follows. Notice what follows. It says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And you're thinking, no wonder this place was exciting. I mean, there were wonders and miracles and speaking in tongue and healings. This is a great place. But that's not what it says. What it says is, Awe, in one, or awe came upon every soul, and there's actually a break in the thinking there and say, oh yeah, by the way, signs and wonders are being done by the apostles too. So the awe was not actually a result of the signs and the wonders. And we somehow think to ourselves, you know, if we can just work it up a little bit more, maybe get a little bit more of a charismatic thing going, I get to a healing service and maybe some speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, we can, yeah, well that's not really what brings awe. That brings excitement in the moment, but that's not what brings awe. There, there's a, an old saying from the old Christian camp meeting days where they would come on location and they would stay for a couple of weeks and people would come and, and people would get all jazzed up and all excited. And one man said this, I don't care how high you jump. I just want to know how straight you're going to walk when you land. You see, it's not just about, woohoo, that was amazing. It was, oh my gosh. There are lives being changed. Deep-seated heart transformation is what is happening. And that is the way that one author uh, sees this. I love what he says. He said, this clause, and all came upon every soul, uh, is used in the imperfect tense, suggesting an enduring sense of awe, inspired by the realization that God was at work in their midst. And the work that God does is changing lives. That's exciting. That's exciting. You know, you can have a concert or you can have a moment, but true excitement is watching somebody who was on a path to self-destruction get rescued and now they love their wife and they love their kids. What's really exceptional is when somebody is hateful and cruel and mean, but they turn around they're now changed at their heart and they love others. My friends, that's exciting. So I want you to know the excitement wasn't because of the wonders and signs. Something else was causing this transformation of heart. Something else was causing this awe to come upon every soul. And what that was is the apostles' teaching. That's right. You see, it is the apostles' teaching that changes lives. This is what caused the awe. This is what made the early church so exciting. It was the apostles who shared with others what Jesus had been doing in working in their presence. This is what transformed people's lives. I'm going to share with you the apostles' teaching. I mean, if it can change hearts and lives and transform people like this, it must have been something. Was it like some kind of hocus-pocus, some kind of secret knowledge. No. No, no, no. It wasn't that at all. You see, the apostles' teaching was the gospel. It was the gospel. You say, Pastor Bill, how do you know that? Because I'm smart. No. <laughs> because, friends, that's what this is. This is nothing more than the gospel. 
The gospel is the scripture. The gospel is not the elementary principles, the ABCs of the word of God. The gospel is the ABCs and the XYZs of the word of God. It doesn't get bigger or better than the gospel. It's about the gospel. We have something called the gospel project going on right now. Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. And it meets upstairs in the educational wing of the school. And, and what they're doing is they're walking through the Older Testament. And as they walk through the Older Testament, it's called the Gospel Project. And so what they're seeing is all the prophetic truths concerning Jesus, his cross work, his, his resurrection, and ultimately his coming again. They're witnessing these things not only in prophetic ways, but also in types and in illustrations and in pictures. All of the Old Testament is nothing more than a shadow of the substance, which is Jesus Christ on the cross. And now beyond all of that, we have the New Testament writings, and all of the writings in the New Testament are nothing more than an embellishment of the gospel or an application of the gospel to the local church. That's all it is. So the apostles' doctrine is the gospel. There is nothing else that can change a life but the grace of God. That is what was happening here. And so this is exciting stuff. And what I want to say, in the next few minutes we have together, I'm going to kind of walk us through the gospel. And then I actually want to take it one step further, and I want to bring it down into our hearts and our lives on kind of a more fundamental day-to-day -day level. Exactly how does the gospel change us or challenge us? You see, what I want you to understand is this is exciting. Tell your face it's exciting. Say it with me. You know, it's exciting. That's my good friend, Scotty, from Star Trek. Okay, one more time. This is... You know, it's exciting. Yes, this is exciting. Now, let me show you exactly how exciting this is, because right now, today, every single person in here has a chance for life change. Every single person, because of the grace of God. Let me explain. So, last week, when I was here, I kind of had that whiteboard, and I was squeegeeing and all kinds of stuff, and it was kind of hard to read and bad colors, and everybody was kind of like, what's he doing up there? He can't even spell... So I decided to change up the format. So I'm going to give it to you, the gospel, this way. And uh, if you want to take notes, please do. Uh, but here we go. We're going to talk about what is the gospel, and then we're going to apply it to how do we actually make it real in our lives in a day-to-day -day way. So the gospel is good news. This is exciting. This is good news. And the good news is simply this. God does for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. He does for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. It is all of God. It is all of grace. It is all a gift. The gospel starts with this thing called the Trinity. The Trinity. God the Father in eternity past thought it. Jesus Christ in life and experience brought it. And today the Holy Spirit is rotting it in our hearts. The gospel is all of God and none of us. You see, if it depended in any way on any of us, we would screw it up. And there would be no salvation. But it doesn't depend on us. It depends solely on God and his work in and through the person of his son through the Holy Spirit. So God, God brought the gospel to bear in the person of Jesus Christ. So let me give you the three images that capture the, the entire ministry of Jesus Christ in this thing called the gospel. First, there is the manger, the crib, uh, the cradle, whatever you want to call it. Then there is this thing called the cross. And then there is this thing referred to as the crown. 
the cradle, the cross, the crown are all about the life of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. So this is all about Jesus, not about you. It's all about him. And so God the Father sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Paul said in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. So God sent his son. Uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, entered into humanity through the womb of the Virgin Mary, God in the flesh. And then God in the flesh went on to live an absolutely perfect life. He did no sin, in him was no sin, he never thought any sin. Jesus Christ was sinless, but better than that, Jesus Christ was absolutely righteous. He lived his entire life under the direction of the will of the Father, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He was tempted repeatedly to take things into his own hands, but he always said no. He lived the perfect life before his Father. So he lived the life that we were meant to live. Thank you, Jesus. And then he died the death that you and I are meant to die under the wrath of God as a penalty for our sins. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God, the complete sacrifice, the innocent sacrifice. Isaiah 53 put it this way, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. You see, we ruin things. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Yeah, because we're selfish at nature. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10 said, And it pleased the Father to crush his son. So Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross for us. The father killed his son. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Not that he ever sinned, we did. He put our sin on his son, and there he judged it. Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again the third day. Today he is the Lord of all. And the day is coming very soon and very soon where he will return to this earth and he will judge all things in righteousness and establish his eternal kingdom. Dear ones, this is the gospel. It is the gospel. You know, I always wondered, you know, <clears throat> I'm just going to take a little abridgment here. I've always wondered, you know, Paul went to a, a city called Thessalonica uh, on his second missionary journey. And he was only there for about three weeks, as best we can understand, three weeks. And then after he left, he wrote them back a letter. And so we have this letter in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says this, Hey guys, now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I'm thinking, how could they know that? He was there three weeks. He led them to Christ. And somehow in three weeks, he was able to define eschatology to these people in a short period of time. 
You know, that's not how it works. You know, what we do is somebody comes to Jesus and, and we sit them down. Oh, now let's learn about God. Big old systematic theology book and we take it out. And we're going to start with uh, the doctrine of the Word of God. And we make our way down about uh, 127 pages. And the doctrine of God, which is another 300 pages. And the doctrine of man. And on and on and on and on until you get the very last part. And it's called the doctrine of the future things, eschatology. So I'm thinking, how did Paul in three weeks get them to digest all of that? Oh, he didn't teach them with systematic theology. He taught them the gospel. Because inherent in the gospel is the reality that Jesus Christ is now the Lord and he is coming back. So I didn't have to write you to remind you of this because you already knew this. So all the teaching of the apostles always boiled down to this message. And it was very quick and very transferable and very easy for it to cross various people groups because it's a simple message but profound. So this is the beautiful truth called the gospel. It is ultimately transferable. How many of you guys are familiar with something called the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed, now never you may have recited it in various settings wherever you've been. The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest creeds or creedal statements that we have. Most likely late 2nd century, maybe early 3rd century. But I'd like you to hear the Apostles' Creed. For those of you who don't know it, it simply goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born to the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. He rose again the third day, ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again and judge the living and the dead. Dear ones, you don't need a thick book of theology. You need the gospel. The gospel is the beginning of your salvation, and it is the key to your sanctification. Everything you need to know is ultimately tied to the gospel. So Paul, three weeks. Hey guys, you need Christ. Oh, yeah, we'll bend the knee. Here we go. All right. Awesome. Now let me just share with you the truth of the gospel. By the way, he's coming back. Gone. Writes back to him. You don't need me to remind you that Jesus Christ is going to return. You know the signs of the times. It's like, why well, does he even know that? Because he shared them with them the gospel. The whole gospel. The whole gospel for the whole person. That's the beauty of this message. It is what the scriptures are about. It is what we need to understand. And it is all of God. It is all of grace, and it's all a gift for those who will come in repentance and faith. So, how do we actually apply this to our experience, this wonderful truth? Well, let's begin by understanding that it all begins, ultimately revolves around, and comes back to this thing called the cross. We have to come to grips with this on a personal heart level. We have to understand that God resists the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. There is no way to approach God without humility. If you think you're God's gift to the earth, you're not. I'm sorry, I just popped your bubble. You're not. Jesus is. He is God's gift to the earth. And so you have to come to grips with this. You have to come to the end of yourself. Oh, look, he's taking a knee. Is he going to watch the NFL? Oh, no, I'm just kidding. So I'm taking a knee. But this knee is in humility. This knee is in humility saying, oh, God, I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm destined for a life apart from you. And when I turn from self and sin and embrace Jesus Christ, what happens is this. My sin is forgiven. All of it. All of it. All of it. 
Let me just say that again. It feels so good. All of it. All of my sin is forgiven. But better than that, I have been given the righteous standing of Jesus Christ. So when the Father looks at me, he sees him. Who am I? A sinner. You see, the only thing we bring to this equation is our sin. He does it all. All the rest. It's all of God. All of grace. All a gift. And so what I want you to understand is this moment, God gives to you a new heart. But that heart that he gives to us has many aspects of it that are yet to need redemption. So the reality is this. When you first come into relationship with Jesus Christ, it establishes this thing called lordship. I'm now moved into this category, having come through the blood of Christ. He's now my Lord. And as my Lord, the active work of Christ in my life today is that of breaking the power of sin in me. And so, Romans chapter 8 in verse 11 says that God, uh, God through Christ gives us the Holy Spirit to actively break down the power of sin in our life and that ultimately Jesus Christ will return and deliver me from sin's presence. Either I'll die and be with him or he will return and bring in his kingdom. It's this that I want to talk to you about. What time is it? <laughs> Oh, okay. <clears throat> so the question is, how does this work in the life of a believer? How is it that he actually um, pulls the fangs out of sin? How is it that he actually makes sin impotent in our lives and we gain this upper hand and ultimately overcome sin in our lives? Even the worst of habits. Well, what I want you to understand is this. What did you do here to get the gift of eternal life. What did you do? You repented and embraced Jesus by faith. And the gift of eternal life was given to you. Uh, forgiveness was given to you. The righteousness of Christ was given to you. Okay, what I want you to understand is how you get in is how you go on. There is no difference. All we continue to do is bring God our brokenness and he continues to tra transform us, not through our own efforts, but ultimately through the work of Jesus Christ that he did for us on the cross. So this is how we do it. As we get in, we go on. Now, let's actually get to this. Here we go. Here's your life. This is your life. This is your lifeline. And uh, so uh, you were born and at some point in your journey, Jesus Christ intersected your life. And at that moment, there was great joy. Do you remember? All of a sudden, you were right with God. Oh, who a thunk. You, 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 you've been forgiven. Oh my gosh, all that I've done? Uh -huh. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus. How could I ever earn that? You can't, that's why they call it grace. And, and, and God is now your father, not your judge. Good stuff. Can I say, that's exciting. That's exciting. When that happens, it's exciting. But what happens shortly thereafter <laughs> is, is after we meet Jesus and there's a lot of joy and we're all excited and everything is wonderful, uh, there's this, this kind of delta that starts to develop in our walk with Jesus. I call it the God gap. And so it looks a little bit like this. As we continue to journey with Jesus, these are not two separate paths, but rather a growing reality in our lives. 
And the growing reality is simply this. After we meet Jesus, we discover that God is a whole lot more holy than I ever knew. You see, as we start this journey with God, all of a sudden we realize the Bible says this, Be ye holy as I am holy, declares the Lord. And then we, we bump into scriptures like this. And Jesus said, it's not the act of adultery that is actually the greatest sin. Actually, it is lusting in your heart that gives way to the sin of adultery. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's just what happens in here and not just what happens out there. Yeah. And then you actually understand from James. James says this, he who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. So it's not just acts of commission of sin, but it's acts of omission of not doing good. So I've got this growing realization, oh my gosh, God is like holy. And he calls me to an incredibly high standard. And there's this growing realization that that's the way it is. So he's calling me to holiness. But at the same time, what he's also revealing to me is that I am more sinful than I had any knowledge of when I met Jesus. You see, it's not so much, it's not so much that, that I was really, really, really bad here and got worse. I was really, really, really bad here. But what I've discovered is this, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who even understands it? See, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I understand the depravity of my own heart. So there's this growing delta in my, my relationship with the Lord. It began with joy. Now there's this overarching sense that, whoa, God is holy, I'm sinful. Now, I still have this testimony, you know. Yeah, how does the cross affect that? Well, you know, way back on June the 6th, 1985, I put my faith in Jesus. Is that really all the gospel's good for? Hmm. What happens is this, and I'm, I'm speaking our language here this morning. I'm being real, you're, you be real with me, okay? We're in this boat together, we're family. The reality is this. The reality of God's holiness leads to guilt. I'm not living up to the standard. I'm not doing all I can. I, I, I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more because God's holy and I better, I better keep performing at a pretty high level. And, and then ultimately, uh, we also have this whole hidden world in our lives of shame. We have habits and things going on in our lives that are put off to the side. Somebody's referred to that as sin management. And over here, we kind of manage our little sinful secrets, hoping that nobody ever discovers them, because if people really understood what was going on there, I wouldn't be the perfect Christian. So we walk into church on Sunday morning, and we're like, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, you're not. You get this whole hidden world over here. You know, all this little stuff of sin that you're, you're collecting and, and all this junk is going on in your life. And what happens is, after a while, we start to just go through this whole thing of pretending. Just pretending. Oh, I'll go to church? Yes. And, and we pretend because that seems to be the way we do this thing, right? Fake it till you make it, right? We just keep going and smiling. Keep going and smiling. But that's really not what Jesus has in mind. <laughs> it's called hypocrisy, if you want to know the truth. He doesn't want that. And then, in, in an effort to deal with all of this shame and guilt in our hearts, we end up moving to performance. Oh, God, I feel so bad about what I've done. I'll go to church this Sunday. Oh, 
You martyr you. Yeah, I know. It's like, really? Oh, God, I'll read my Bible tomorrow, I promise. Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Uh. And, and so, you know, what, what we end up doing is this whole list of things we'll do to God. It's, it's almost like we're doing penance. It's like we're doing some kind of thing where we're whipping ourselves because we're bad people and we better do these things so we can be better people so God will like me. And so what happens is we live in this dissonance of the joy I used to know, but it's all gone in the midst of the shame and the guilt I feel. I pretend a lot now, and I'm trying hard to please God. This all becomes works righteousness. Oh God, please be, please be okay with me. Please be okay with me. Please be okay with me. I've got to do more to make you happy with me. How did you get in? What did you bring? You brought your filthy, rotten sin to Jesus, right? And he gave you beauty, love, forgiveness. So what I want you to understand is our role in receiving all the goodness of God, all the grace of God, all the love of God, all of this from the Lord is repentance. It's an acknowledgement of where I fall short and an embracing of Jesus who paid for that sin and gave me his righteousness. And it's washed away, fresh and new. The way you get in is the way you go on. It's not by works of righteousness. It's by repentance and faith. It's repentance and faith. Jesus said, take your cross up daily and follow me. It's repentance and faith, death to self. This is how we go forward and we experience the constant cleansing of the cross in our life. This is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice was sufficient not only here, but here along the journey. And not only there, but here. All you've got to do is give him your sin. How much of your sin was committed after the cross? Oh, all of it? Was he surprised at what you did? Oh, you were? He wasn't. Somebody said this. God loves you no matter what you do. And God loves you no matter what you don't do. God loves you in the person of Jesus Christ perfectly. Perfectly. It's by repentance and faith, 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 repentance and faith. And that's what changes a heart. It's not trying harder. It's not by working harder. In fact, the Apostle Paul had to chastise the Galatian church with that mentality. Listen to what he said to them. He said, oh, you foolish Galatians. I love how Paul writes. He never kind of pulls punches. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I shared with you the gospel. Now, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by your flesh, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now going to be perfected in your flesh? No. The way you get in is the way you go on. The way you get in is the way you go on. There is nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. There is nothing you could ever do to make God love you less because he loves you perfectly in Jesus. Why? Do we let our guilt 
and our shame steal our love and joy in the Lord. Jesus lived a perfect life and there's nothing left to prove. Jesus died a perfect death and there's no reason to pretend. Claim the work of God's grace on the cross and let his perfect sacrifice and his love grip your heart. The way God breaks the chains of sin is by love, not your effort. There's only one thing that will change your life, and it's grace. It is the reception of that which God has done for me that I am totally unworthy of, that takes my guilt away and replaces it with gratitude. That takes my shame away and replaces it with love and a desire to please the Father with my life. This is how sinful habits are broken. Not by, you need more accountability, you've got to do this, 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 and this. You need the gospel to transform your heart yet again. Remember, the heart, there's many unevangelized parts of your heart that need to be redeemed and evangelized. And that happens every time you apply the gospel by repentance and grace to your heart. Repentance and faith to your heart. So, you know, it would really be cool if somehow God put into our lives something that would remind us that we need the cross in our lives. Oh, wait a minute. He did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship and the what? Oh, wait a minute. What is that? Oh, by the way, it's the first Sunday of the month. I show you the gospel. This has been given to us by Jesus as a constant reminder that we are to examine our hearts, to apply the bread, which is his perfect righteous life. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And to apply the blood, there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. I've got forgiveness and righteousness in Jesus. Why do we hold on to the things that cripple us? This morning, we're going to partake of these elements. As we do... I want to encourage you, Dennis, would you bring the guys forward to go ahead and serve? As, as we do, I, I would like for you to focus in on what Christ has done for you. And that's everything. All he wants you to bring to him is your sin in repentance. And in faith, again embrace the reality of the cross. So please listen to this song. When it's over with, uh, we will partake of these elements together. Manus, could I have a little volume, please? Thank you. This is the cup that holds the blood of the new covenant. This is forgiveness, simple and true. This is the way that I have made for you. Before you eat, before you drink. Take a long look inside and tell me what you see. 
I just say, this is exciting, because life change is about to happen, and that happens when we bring our sin to him. We confess it, turning from it, and embracing his complete sacrifice for what we need in our lives. So right now, every life can be different, and one more step in this process of becoming more like Jesus. So we have this wafer which represents the body of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I have received of the Lord that which also I now deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, my perfect, sinless, righteous body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake and thank God for the righteousness of Christ that applied to our lives.
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and he said this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice that dealt with all of my sin. You drank the cup of God's wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation for me in you. Thank you, Jesus. Let's partake. Can I say, we never outgrow the gospel because it is the only way to grow up in Christ. We don't need more than the gospel. We need more of the gospel in our lives. Next week, we're going to talk about how to speak the gospel into our own lives and into one another's lives. You see, we're family. We help each other grow in these areas of our lives. I'm just going to throw up an audio that I think is cool. I think we should walk out of here with joy, excited in all that God has done. So you're free to leave, but leave with this song in your heart. Need some audio. There we go. God bless you. You're not the only one who feels like this. Feeling like you lose more than you win. Like life is just an endless hill you climb. You try and try, but never arrive. I'm telling you something. This racing, this running. Oh. So go.